Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Uh, thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. Uh, I just want to take this opportunity to remind everyone attending in person to silence your cell phones. And uh, for those watching online, you're welcome to submit questions at any time by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Uh, hosting today's program is Walter Lohman. He is the director of our Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. And with that, I will hand it over to Walter. Thank you. Thank you all for, for coming out today to talk about Indonesia-U.S. relations and the rise of China. Um, I particularly want to thank uh, Rizal Romley for joining us. Salamat uh, datang. Very good to have you here. Um, Southeast Asian voices are so important to the debate here in Washington. And honestly, uh, we don't hear enough of them. We were just having a conversation about that a second ago. We don't hear enough of them in Washington. Um, Southeast Asia is usually discussed, I think it's fair to say, in absentia, uh, except for the fine representation of the many embassies here. Uh, and if you're being discussed in absentia here in Washington, that means you're being discussed by the China specialists. So the China specialists have a lot of a lot of ideas about what's going on in Southeast Asia and how it's disposed to great power competition and all the rest. And in my opinion, that very seriously skews the debate and our understanding of things. So it's good to have someone from Southeast, from Southeast Asia. It's good to have someone from Indonesia here, uh, especially given the centrality Indonesia has in ASEAN and its, and its centrality to regional geopolitics, something that I think maybe because of the skewed debate here in Washington, we don't think enough about. Um, it's particularly nice to have someone as distinguished as former economic coordinating minister and former maritime affairs minister, Rizal Romley here, uh, to lead off our discussion. Uh, by way of introduction, I just want to make a couple more references to his, to his bio. Uh, he also served as finance minister, and he served as head of Bulog, as well as being a president and commissioner of Simon Gresik. Uh, the latter two things don't translate that well into American. So uh, just to let you know, Bulog is the state uh, logistics agency, which was once a very powerful organization in Indonesia, still still powerful, but once very powerful. And Semen Gresik is Indonesia's, now now Semen Indonesia, but is, is Indonesia's biggest cement producer and, and one of the largest in the world. So, um, so Patrizal had some very big jobs in, in Indonesia. He's currently chairman of a think tank that he that he founded called Econic Advisory Group. Um, he also has a PhD in economics from Boston University, so one of the one in the fine traditions of Indonesians who have come to the United States for economic training. Uh, we need some of that back in the States now, I think, uh, so we do some of our own home training in that regard. 
So with that, let me turn it over to uh, Pat Rizal, and he'll get us started. He's going to speak, and then we'll take some questions and, and have a little bit of discussion. And then he's got to go, and so we'll bring up our panel to continue continue the conversation and commentary. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. Uh, I'm glad I was here. One of the highly respected conservative think tank in the U.S. Uh, I'm also honored to be able to speak and have some discussion with you uh, this morning. Uh, I would like to talk about the geostrategic shift in Asia from an Indonesian perspective. Indonesia, one of the largest maritime country in the world. And we are constitutionally committed to promote peace and ensure the stability and neutrality of the Asian region. So we are committed to uh, proactive and uh, foreign policy. After 32 years of authoritarian regime of General Suharto, Indonesia has transformed itself into a democratic and decentralized country 20 years ago in after the math of the crisis in 1998. I was part of a long process to change Indonesia into an open and democratic country. I was deal by Suharto for one and a half years uh, during my student days at Institute Technology Bandung in Bandung. It is a hard-won democracy. It has to be fought over with sweat and sacrifices. But democracy has to deliver peace and prosperity to the people. Otherwise, there's always a lurking temptation to return to an authoritarian system. If you all remember history, British ruled the sea in 19th century. British also ruled the world. The 20th century is the American century also supported by maritime forces. The 21 century, everybody agree, is going to be the Asian century. The quick key question, however, is it going to be the rise of democratic Asia or authoritarian Asia? Sorry, the paper stick to each <laughs> Or both in the peaceful coexistence between the two systems. Whatever happened, we do hope that the 21st century is going to be a peaceful and prosperous Asia. 
There is a growing perception that to be able to grow fast, Asian countries need to follow the path of centralized state. The perception is not always true. A democratic Japan was able to achieve double-digit growth, almost 12%, for 20 years after the Second World War. The key to the performance, economic performance, not the centralized or democratic system itself, but mostly depend on the capacity to harness private and state sector in a progressive harmony. Democratic Asia can achieve high growth and deliver prosperity by having an effective policy mix and a leadership that transforms vision into reality. Southeast Asia, South Asia and Japan should take the lead in promoting high growth in a democratic context, strengthening the vision of democracy that deliver peace and prosperity is very important. Within that context, it is important that Indonesia and other ASEAN countries work together to promote peace and stability in the region, acting as a counterbalance to countries with aggressive geostrategic intention. <coughs> Indonesia have friendly relationship with all major countries in the world. But we will not tolerate any claims and intention to intervene with our territorial integrity. When I was a coordinating minister of maritime affairs two years ago, I took the initiative to change the name of Indonesian part of South China Sea, change the name into North Natuna Sea. There is a formal protest from China. I was surprised by the reaction. We have the right to name any part of our territory as we wish. It is nobody's business to intervene because we are not part of any country hegemony. Our territorial integrity is sanctioned by the UN UNCLOSED and I would like to underline our strategic position that Indonesia wish to be friendly with any other countries, but please don't ever try to meddle in our territorial integrity. Within that context, I would urge the United States to see Indonesia not just the largest democratic Muslim country and part of the war against global tourism. This is the main thinking in the U.S. as I see it. See is Indonesia as the largest democratic Muslim country be part of a war against global terrorism. But I would like to see the U.S. understand 
that Indonesia is an important country to sustain a peaceful and democratic Asia. A force to counterbalance any aggression intention, any aggressive intention to pursue one geostrategic intention. A strong and prosperous Southeast Asia, South Asia and Japan is an important alliance that will guarantee peace and prosperity for the 21st Asian century. Within that context, I appreciate the strategic importance of the dialogue between the U.S. and North Korea. I could perceive the positive benefit politically, economically, of a successful dialogue between President Trump and Kim Jong-un in terms of peace and prosperity in Asia. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to take a few questions from the audience if you have if you have some. I've got a couple myself if you need to if you need to think a little bit. Um, well, the, the first question I had uh, comes back to this issue of um, of uh, the importance of prosperity in the region, importance of prosperity to the stability and the continuing democratic institutions. Uh, there is a little bit of an irony in that it's the Chinese who are well-positioned to help provide for a lot of prosperity in the region, um, but they're not necessarily promoting democratic model. Yes. So how do you account for that sort of contradiction? I mean, that it's the Chinese that, well, the Chinese, not just the Chinese, but the Chinese are big contributors to prosperity in Southeast Asia, and yet they're not, um, they're not supporters of the current international order in the region and not supporters of democratic governance, et cetera. Walter, I think, I'm sorry, I have to correct you. China supporting big project in Asia, including Indonesia, not necessarily prosperity. Because in most of the cases, big infrastructure financed by China bring their own worker, unskilled and semi-skilled, that create a lot of dissatisfaction among Indonesian. As average Indonesian industry is asking a lot of big Chinese infrastructure projects. But what are they for us? We cannot work. They bring in their semi-skilled, unskilled workers. Uh, it's good for the country infrastructure. It's good for other things. But for the average Indonesian, they still wonder uh, whether this kind of project benefit them or not. But I would agree with you, there are these two school of thinking. One, in order to offer high growth and prosperity, you should follow the Chinese model. But I do believe that there are the other democratic Asia that can deliver growth. I'll give you an example. Japan, under the Prime Minister Ikeda, after the Second World War, can grow 12% for 20 years. There are other cases of models, South Korea, Malaysia, and etc. Unfortunately, there are this general perception that if you want high growth, you have increasing prosperity, you should follow the Chinese model. I don't buy that argument. We didn't do our homework in the democratic Asia to deliver prosperity. 
I give you just one simple example. I fight for democracy in Indonesia since I was young. I was jailed. But what we have now, I call it criminal democracy for a very simple reason. 300 of 352 majors is in jail because of corruption. Half of our governor is in jail because of corruption. Hundreds of our members of parliament at national and local are in jail because we follow the American experience of democracy, asking the party to finance itself. In the U.S., it's not a problem because your population is richer than us. They contribute to the party. You have corporations that contribute to the party. The party doesn't need the support of the state financing. And when you do that, when Indonesia follow that, what they done is they steal in a big way at our national budget, at our local budget, and our state enterprises. The total stealing is about uh, 75 trillion, uh, almost $7 billion a year. I would like to change that by 2019. We have to follow the European models of party financing. In Europe, in England, in Australia, in New Zealand, party is financed by the, the state so the job of the party is just to find good candidate with good issue, with good fashion. Uh, I do believe that this is the only way democracy can bring prosperity. In Indonesia currently, this kind of criminal democracy only bring prosperity to the elite in the party system in the parliament of Yudikata. If we want to change this, transform democracy that bring prosperity, we have to change the reform the financing system. And that's the way I would like to do it by the year 2019. Mm. Does, it, does, the, does the corruption issue, uh, is it also a geopolitical issue in the sense that it gives a way in for foreign actors? Is there any evidence of, of uh, not necessarily with campaign financing, mm -hmm. but an irregular system can sometimes yes. accommodate foreign influence in foreign policy in other ways. Do you find that in evidence in, in Asia at all? If there are a lot of big projects in Indonesia, there are competition between China, Japan, and European or U.S. Most likely the U.S., European, and even Japan is going to lose in the tender process because China uh, cost is about 60, uh, 40%, 50% cheaper. Uh, so there are problem of real competition. Uh, China are able to do a much competitive price setting because uh, because the currency is usually uh, undervalued and other factor. But uh, some country have a standard of ethics that doesn't condone bribery to officials. Some other countries are willing to play the money games. And by doing so, they don't have to fight a war, essentially. It's just by the elite. Yeah. Uh, they don't have to posture for a big hardware, uh, but just entertain and uh, facilitate the interests of the elite. Uh, by doing so, you can buy policy. 
by doing so, you can tilt it the direction of you foreign policy. And I think this is not good. We should set a standard of governance that are important because then we don't have a case like in Malaysia. There are a lot of large projects. Some of them are not necessarily needed, but you are lobby to get the project and the financing that the real economic benefit is yet not a priority or small. Luckily, Mahathir and Anwar just got re-elected. They followed some of, renegotiated some of this uh, highly uh, overpriced and financed project. And I think if there are political change in Indonesia, uh, in 2019, similar thing can also be done. Thank you. I have one more question for you, but I wanted to ask the audience right here in the back. Please identify yourself, if you would. Hi, Mustafa Gong, a journalist. Uh, here's my question: Mal- Your neighbor Malaysia just had an election, and after the election, the Malay, the new Malaysian government turned to, I can't say hostile, but very alert to the Chinese government. And is there any impact from you know? Uh, to Indonesia, and my second question is more specific and about IMDb case, and uh, it has a great impact to almost every country in Southeast Asia. And the Malaysia government, I think yesterday, just announced they intend to arrest uh, Joe Low. So, is there any impact in Indonesia? Uh, it's quite an irony. Because Malaysia learned from us to reform the system. In fact, Anwar Ibrahim used specifically Indonesian word reformasi. When we want to push Suharto out, the brand line is for reformasi. And Anwar purposely uh, chose this Indonesian historical experience as the movement for reformasi of Malaysia. And uh, there are a lot of access during the previous government in Malaysia, including the case that you mentioned, and the new government. Uh, Anwar Ibrahim is a close friend of mine. Uh, just two weeks ago, after he won the election, he came to Indonesia. We met and discussed uh, what happened in Malaysia. I think it's time now for Indonesia to learn from the experience of Malaysia, in the sense that uh, don't get too pragmatic in accepting big project that might not our first priority with further consequences in governance, further consequences since our, our foreign policy. And uh, we learn from the Malaysian experience. But from the wider context, as you might notice, uh, most Asian country uh, tilted to Beijing for again pragmatic reason, project finance, and etc. And uh, Malaysia start to turn the shift, and Vietnam also traditionally quite independent uh, in this sense. And if there are political changes which are likely in Indonesia in 2019. You will see Indonesia, Malaysia, and Vietnam could provide quite a change of the way we look at the geostrategic interests 
of any big country in the region. Hi, uh, my name is Gerrit van der Wees. I'm from the Netherlands, but I did gr grow up in Indonesia, Tempodulu. So I want to say terima kasih banyak for your very inspiring speech and for your role in bringing about democracy to Indonesia. Another country in the region that went to democracy in a very great fashion was Taiwan, made the momentous transition just uh, 20 years ago also. And President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan has elaborated a new southbound policy to work together with countries in Southeast Asia on peace and prosperity. Uh, do you see prospects for cooperation with Taiwan in bringing about peace and prosperity to the region? Uh, thank you. You have been now in Indonesia for a long time. I'm glad you still is very, very healthy. Uh, I know President Stein. I met her uh, a few days before her inauguration in Taiwan. Uh, she formulated this uh, Look South policy, which is a good initiative. Uh, I think it is important for democratic uh, countries in Asia, in the context of Indo-Pacific, uh, create a much more stronger relationship in order to showcase and prove that democratic Asia can also deliver prosperity. As I said at the beginning, 21st century is an Asian century. The question whether it is just going to be dominated by one model, the centralized model, or democratic model, or in coexistence of both. I do believe at least a coexistence of both. Uh, if not, you know, if we can work together we can perform much better in terms of growth and prosperity. But that kind of relationship is not enough. It's just government to government. There should be more interaction, even people and people. Uh, in Taiwan, there are a couple of hundred of Indonesian workers worker, works in the industry and etc. Uh, they have put too much uh, risks investing in other countries. They have they are interested to diversify looks of policy. And uh, I think this is a welcome initiative. Indonesia look at it in a very good way. Thank you. Thank you. Jonathan, did you? We have a microphone for you. Uh, Jonathan Strumseth uh, from the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much for your remarks, and thanks to Heritage for organizing this event on such an important topic. Um, when I'm traveling in the region, whether Indonesia, Singapore, Vietnam, um, while the South China Sea issue re remains, of course, very hot and of great concern, one increasingly hears about um, sort of the Mekong region, uh, the infrastructure or uh, hydropower dam projects going on there. Um, and that almost seems to have replaced uh, the South China Sea as sort of the hot button issue in terms of growing concern about China's rising influence in the region. As a former maritime minister, uh, sir, I was wondering how you uh, interpret that, because I was surprised that some of the biggest concerns I heard about this was actually in Jakarta. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Of course, again, China needs big infrastructure projects outside of China, because 
China economy already exhausted most of its unused capacity. There are more than maximum capacity in the industry, infrastructure. In order to sustain higher growth, they have to expand outside the country for over initiative and as such. And most of the ASEAN country thinks this as a good alternative of financing, knowing that the US and others are more less aggressive in terms of uh, pushing uh, growth and uh, project development in the Southeast Asia. Uh, and again, uh, some of these projects, some of them are needed. Power project, I do believe, are needed all over Asia. But other big infrastructure project, toll road, big port, big whatever, is not necessarily our first priority. By taking this loan, uh, you know, some of uh, countries in the neighborhood have to kowtow, uh, have to be nice to Beijing <laughs> uh, than necessary. Uh, but from our side, we are not part of the uh, contesting interest in the South China Sea per se. But if you look at the map of China, they have this nine desk concept in which part of it uh, belong to Indonesian territory. And China has always argued this is our traditional fishing ground. Uh, Indonesia, I myself, doesn't buy this argument because there's no such thing as traditional fishing ground. Uh, our territory is protected by UNCLOS. That is the sanction that are strong enough, and we cannot uh, accommodate this idea of uh, traditional fishing ground. And of course, this creates uh, quite uh, Israeli whom you talk to. If you talk to the government, they say, well, we need China, we have to be nice to China, don't do this, don't do that. But if you talk to people outside the government, they say, Come on, we don't want anybody interfere in our territorial integrity, whoever they are. And uh, this is a message that are important that the government of Indonesia failed to, to let everybody know. Thank you. I love the efficiency with which you handle these questions. So we'll be able to get plenty of plenty yes. in uh, here, and then you next. Hello, thank you very much to the Heritage Foundation for organizing this and for this wonderful, these wonderful remarks. Uh, my name is Peter Zen. I work at a law firm, Foley Hoag. We represent foreign countries in international litigation, and we were the law firm that brought the Philippines case against China. So I was wondering, I guess I have two short questions. First, do you think that that was actually a worthy endeavor, and you won't offend my feelings, to actually bring that case on behalf of the Philippines against China, or do you think it was completely pointless given China's reaction? And the second question is, do you think that it would be in Indonesia's interest to bring a similar case uh, in a similar forum against China, or do you think it might be useless as well? Peter, on the first one, we thank you, because bring the case to the international court in Den Haag. And you won the case, which is important to protect our territory. Uh, and we should publicly support the winning case of the Philippines. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I was a connecting minister of maritime at the time, 
I got a call from the palace. Please, nobody talk about this issue. Uh, we have to be uh, low and quiet. Uh, personally, I disagree with this approach. Uh, this is a good enforcement of international law. It is in Indonesia interest to support the case because it strengthens the sanction of the international law. But again, because of very pragmatic reason, uh, they are disposed to every minister in Indonesia, keep quiet, don't say anything, blah, blah, blah. And uh, whether in the future uh, we might pursue this uh, line, it really depends on how far is the level of aggressiveness in the region. It is in our interest, Indonesia, to maintain a peaceful, natural uh, Southeast Asia, because that's an underlying key for prosperity. We are not looking to have enemies. We want to be friends with anybody, including China, but please don't interfere in our territorial integrity. Thank you, Shi uh, Qingzhou from Shanghai Institute for International Studies and also a visiting fellow in CSIS. And uh, I have been to uh, Indonesia several times. Uh, one Indonesia colleagues uh, tell us Indonesia is a paradise for investment, but not a paradise for investors. And I, I'm not one to ask questions about China-Indonesia's relations. Just uh, I want to know, are there any influences of uh, Malaysia's latest general election and on the general election of Indonesia next year. And uh, how do you think about the general election of Indonesia next year? Thank you. Influence of US, uh, of the, of the Malaysian election on Indonesian election. Um, yeah. And, and what his thoughts are yes. yeah, on next year? Yes, uh, we are going to have a presidential election next year. So far, there are two running candidates, President Jokowi and General Prabowo Subianto. But if you look at their electability, President Jokowi's electability is fast declining for three reasons. One is a factor of Islam. Second is a stagnant economy. Of course, for you in the U.S. and Europe, 5% is such a big and good number. But for us, Indonesia, 6% is means stagnant. It's not enough to absorb new young forces, labor forces. We at least need 6.5%. Uh, Jokowi government has pursued essentially an austerity program, cutting the budget, run for taxes, and etc. And as the result, the economic growth is stagnant, 5% in the last two years, and most likely to be stagnant in the next five years, in the next two years. And the effect of the stagnant economy, not on the middle and upper middle class, they are doing well. Uh, as you know, in any country that is stagnant or in crisis, the middle class and upper middle class are doing well because they can diversify the asset, hedging the asset, and etc. The burden of that problem is essentially in the lower middle class. Their purchasing power is fast declining. And third is the import policy. Not only the amount exceeded the domestic demand, because that's a rent 
seeking operation in that import uh, through a quota system, through a cartel system, but also because the timing of import is done during the harvest time, so depress price and create a perpetual uh, dependence. And this is three reasons why Jokowi electability dropped to about 35%. His opponent is stuck at 20%, mostly because the resistance of the middle class, the business, the media, and etc. Uh, but if you put another question to the one that elect going to elect Jokowi, the 35%, are you going to still elect him until the year of the election next year? Only 50% say yes. 20% say they're open to another change of alternative. Similarly, with Prabowo's supporter, 20% vote for him now, but they said, only 9.5% will keep voting for him one year later. The rest is open to change. It essentially tells you that politically it is a very fluid system. Nobody can really sure to win. And average Indonesian industry are looking for alternative. Uh, I tried Clinton question a couple of times. I travel across the region in the last six months, and I put a simple question, are you better in the last two years, economically, socially? They said, no. You have hope that you're going to be better the next two years, 2019? They said, no. So that underlying situation, uh, open for the opportunity of change, there are possibilities of the third alternative of Indonesian president. But from the geopolitics, Indonesian love the middle. Uh, I remember my former boss, President Gushdor, two years because before he was elected president, he told me, Rizzo, I will be the next Indonesian president. Two years down the road, I said, Gushdor, come on, you don't have the money. <laughs> you don't have the money. Your party is small. People in the rural area respect you, but the urban people, intellectual, despise you. He said, Rizal, I got it from the top already. <laughs> but the more I think about it, the more I understand, because he understands the Indonesian political sociology. Indonesian that have a background in Muslim tradition or Muslim political movement, will not elect a president that come that are nationalist, nor abangan or semi-secular, like Megawati at that time. The same thing, the one that are nationalist and secular, will not vote for anybody with Muslim political background like Amin Rais. At the end, they look at the middle, and the middle at the time is Gusdur. Minority in Indonesia is 10%. Their influence might be 30%. They are also looking for someone in the middle. Now, 18 years ago, the friction between Muslim uh, politically, uh, political background and nationalist and secular, the friction is not that high. Currently, if you talk to a lot of Indonesian, including the lower class, the middle class, the friction between two sections of the society is much stronger. Once because the case of Aho, the governor, and etc. 
at the end of the day, Indonesian is going to look who is the real middle in this one. And unfortunately, I am sorry to say, the real middle in Indonesia now is Riza Ramli. <laughs> <laughs> From the geopolitical perspective, it's also the U.S., of course, traditionally would like to have somebody that they can control from Washington. China, similarly, too. But Indonesian would love to have a president that are independent for both this geostrategic interest. is not a puppet of anybody. Uh, that can, Sukarno and our precious leaders who have to maintain this independent and proactive uh, policy to encourage uh, peace and prosperity. And again, if you look at the name of the candidate, you can see who is more pro-Beijing, who is more pro-right-wing uh, Islam, and who is in the middle. The question the U.S. policymaker now particularly, only look Indonesia from the perspective of the, mo the largest democratic Muslim country and all its implication in the fights against the global fundamentalisms of the global terrorism. The U.S. undermine the importance of Indonesia in balancing this multiple geostrategic interests in Asia. I urge you, the Heritage Foundation and the one that are here, to have a second thought that it is not enough you look Indonesia only from the fight of terrorism and the fight against fundamentalism. It is important to recognize the importance of Indonesian roles in the stability and neutrality of the region. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very good way to end your your talk here. Um, you, you've uh, you've given me faith in Indonesia's uh, middle of the roadism, yeah. um, which I think is is not well understood enough yeah. in Washington, whether it comes to China or many other issues, including in, including politics. There. So, thank you very much for those remarks and for handling uh, so many questions. Hope to have you back here again sometime. Was well, You look much younger than my imagination. <laughs> you, you can claim yourself to be 40. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I'll work on that. I actually, Thank I've you. got some Thank documents you. to change yes. in that regard. Uh, let, let me uh, welcome our other guests up here to continue the conversation. All right. Well, um, as I say, I want to continue a conversation with a couple uh, very distinguished and uh, expert um, expert commentators here on on affairs in Indonesia and in Southeast Asia uh, generally. Uh, first, I'm going to turn to Ambassador Cameron Hume. Uh, Cameron is chairman of the American Indonesian, Indonesian Chamber of Commerce. It's housed in, in New York. Um, you know, Washington has a way of only focusing on Washington and not even on New York. But uh, but the chamber is almost um, 70 years old now, uh, predates so many of the other institutions that we associate here in Washington with Indonesia, USINDO or U.S. ASEAN Business Council or some of those groups. It even predates Indonesian independence for that matter. So it's been around a long time, very influential organization that 
that we don't uh, have enough exposure to in Washington, uh, honestly. Uh, Cameron is a career foreign service officer. He received a, a rank of a career minister. He was ambassador to Indonesia at the end of the Bush administration and into the Obama administration. And in addition to Indonesia, he was also ambassador to Algeria and South Africa. Uh, he has a very long and distinguished career in the Foreign Service, and I would take up way too much time to go through all of it. But, uh, yeah, but uh, you probably don't remember all of it at this point. But, uh, <laughs> but with that, let me, let me turn it over to you. We'll hear from you first, and then I'll turn to, turn to Brian and introduce him. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Walter. Uh, Indonesia is not really well known in Washington. It's not followed by many people. I think the presentation we had from Rizal Romley was an unusually realistic and forthright presentation. Not that I agree with all of his points, but I just mentioned that to you, and you're to be commended for having him speak here. I'd like to just put a little analytical framework out for people, particularly people who are not long-term Indonesia watchers. Uh, it's a really big country. It's number four in the world in terms of population. Uh, in Washington, you would think Singapore were bigger than Indonesia. Right? Yeah. In terms it's of attention, really, you mean? Yeah. It's not really. It, uh, Indonesia often punches below its weight. What are the long-term trends in Indonesia? Uh, I'm a little more optimistic probably than, than uh, Rizal was. Uh, the main long-term trend is you have a movement of people from poverty and rural communities into a cash economy, into part of the global economy, as you had in China and other countries. And this has sustained over 70 years uh, a higher growth rate than many other places. And until uh, the rise of uh, until the rise of China in 1990. More people had been lifted out of poverty in Indonesia than in any other country in the world. And, of course, China's much bigger than Indonesia. So, you know, Indonesia's record isn't, isn't that bad. And uh, while their growth rate as they approach uh, a middle-class economy could be higher and should be higher, uh, it's sort of moderate positive, I'd say. Uh, it's not surprising that the rating agencies uh, have, you know, gradually – Give them, giving them a better rating on uh, debt. So they have uh, an emerging uh, middle class, which has sustained their adjustment to democracy. Uh, now, uh, there were things he said that he didn't really tie in so much to the domestic situation. And I'm going to make a couple of comments try and help people who aren't experts in Indonesia to get some kind of a picture. It's a, it can be a confusing place, but some kind of a picture of power relations. For 70 years, you had the uh, Sukarno family. And generally, uh, they have had, a, let's say, a, a secularist uh, uh, approach to politics, and generally... Uh, they have had uh, good relations with China, generally. You have the Saharto clan, which uh, is more has been more nationalist, and uh, their overseas connections uh, have been more varied and different 
eras. Uh, but I think in the if you looked at the last election cycle, they would have gotten a higher percentage of their external support from friends in the Middle East than uh, the uh, than Jokowi did. And in all of the elections over seventy years, whether they're elections that are relatively free now or relatively unfree before, around a third of the vote goes to Islamic parties. Sometimes it's 25%, sometimes it's 34%. And uh, while there has been, there have been variations in that, you can't really cite a convincing long-term trend that, my God, this is going to change in the next three years and X, Y, or Z happen. That would be a shorter-term trend. So <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> they're left now, and they're dealing with things that, again, Rizal brushed on, uh, what kind of a country are they going to have? And they have problems. They have problems with inequality. It's, it's, they have uh, growing inequality uh, and, the, and the social and political consequences of that. They have problems where they have a market economy without strong rule of law. Uh, and, and with the lack of strong rule of law has a major, major, major impact on the access of uh, Indonesia to direct foreign investment. So most foreigners, if they're going to invest in Indonesia, do portfolio investment. Uh, obviously, the Chinese model is uh, somewhat different, and uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to that, which he, which he mentioned. So I think that's, I'd say overall, overall there's been progress, and there's some uh, opportunity for the United States. Internationally, again, I think his, his, the way he positioned Indonesia is more or less a balancer that wants to maintain its, its freedom of choice and not being subservient to any larger uh, outside country. Is uh, I would agree with that. There is a rising nationalism in Indonesia, and that's somewhat of a wild card. This affects both direct foreign investment, direct foreign investors, it also uh, affects, as he suggested, or can affect their relationship with uh, with uh, China and their perceived uh, involvement in the Indonesian economy. And it relates to some extent to uh, Islamic political parties. And you see this more on a regional basis, uh, but that's, I would say, that's a wild card to look at. Finally, I'd just like to make a couple of comments about the United States and the way we approach things. Uh, so I would say that uh, in the last election, uh, financing tended to flow. And, and a, an Indonesian presidential election supposedly costs more than an American presidential election. This is not a joke. This is lots of money. This is uh, free lunch pails and T-shirts for everybody who goes to every political rally. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, the people who know Indonesia know I'm not, I'm not making this up. So it costs money. And outside money tended to flow from more from China, more towards Jokowi. Outside money from the Middle East tended to flow more, not exclusively, none of these is exclusive, more towards uh, Prabowo. 
what happens in the future, I don't know, but you, you could ask yourselves, uh, what about America? Well, America's different. America attempts to influence the behavior of domestic political actors by stigmatizing them after they do something we don't like. We do not have policies that reward people in advance for things we would like them to do. Maybe we shouldn't, but we don't. So it's a different dynamic. And our relationship with uh, Indonesia, while we're interested observers of what is happening now, that we don't, we are not involved in that. The parts of our government that understand Indonesia and have long-term policies towards Indonesia, activist policies towards Indonesia, are one, the U.S. Navy, for obvious reasons. You cannot move ships from Honolulu to the Persian Gulf, or you could, but you'd have to go a long way around. You go through Indonesian waters. The Navy knows this, never forgets it. The second part of the U.S. government that has consistent long-term views on Indonesia and engagement with Indonesia are security service. You mentioned a little bit uh, our overreaction uh, or over-engagement on questions of terrorism. Terrorism uh, is uh, a fact of life to some extent, here and there. I think we've had more inc terrorist incidents in the last 10 years than Indonesia has. We don't do travel warnings on Texas or South Carolina, but we do them on other countries. So that should be, I would say, it's, it's a big issue. Uh, we're correct to have a strong, a strong engagement with Indonesia on the subject. They are good allies in this, but it's not the only thing. Where we fall down, we have neither a... Uh, a proactive trade policy with Indonesia or economic policy, nor uh, an active uh, uh, political policy towards Indonesia. I realize that's difficult given the character of the country. This is just a description of where we are, but we should not be surprised then if America, what is perceived as American influence is expressed and registers in Indonesia in a different way than the influence that comes either from uh, the Middle East or from the Asian mainland. Thank you. Great. That was, that was terrific, Cameron. Thank you. That, it opens up several avenues for a discussion a little bit later. Uh, but, but first, let me turn it over to Brian Harding. Uh, Brian is a deputy director and fellow of the Southeast Asia Program at CSIS. He's just joined this year from Center for American progress. This isn't as close as we've ever been as we've ever been to Center for American Progress. We've actually had my former <laughs> colleagues yeah, aren't watching online. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I always said I had the least political job in the entire in the entire organization. I would think you might have the least yeah, political that, that's job true. in the Heritage that, Foundation. You know, I try to explain absolutely. I try to explain <laughs> that to people all the time. And and in fact, I'm going to I'm going to China tomorrow and on a State Department program, partly to explain this to them yeah. that actually on Asia policy. There's not much partisan division, and there's a lot of cooperation that I think 
is not always well understood. You should do a project with my former colleagues that uh, I should that do. I yeah, yeah, I, I should I do. It. Good, good point. <laughs> oh, but my point was we have had them here before, at least one other time. So, so this isn't as close as we've ever been since you've just been there. <laughs> um, but, um, but uh, currently Brian is at CSIS, as I say, uh, with the Southeast Asia program there, where he's uh, deputy director. Um, I think you also had something to do with founding that. At, when you were there in a prior capacity. That's true. Um, from 2009 to 2013, Brian served in the Office of Secretary of Defense as Country Director for Asian Pacific Security Affairs. He holds an MA in Asian Studies from George Washington University, and he's actually studied in Indonesia at Gajamada University in Jogja. So with that, let me turn it over to you, Brian. And... Sure. Thank you. Um, and I thought I would put on my former Pentagon official hat here since I knew I was going to be following a senior minister and a former ambassador. I thought I would stay in my lane just here for a bit and try to add something on the U.S.-Indonesia defense relationship uh, and some of the China-related implications. But I, I just want to just briefly, though, pick up on this interesting conversation we've had both with Minister and Ambassador Hume about Indonesia's uh, election and financing um, uh, and how the United States might play a role. Um, I think that this should be a natural opportunity for the United States over the next year with Indonesia to help Indonesia defend its democracy. The United States presidential election was clearly interfered with by a foreign power. Uh, we should have lessons to share about how Indonesia cannot be subject to uh, the same manipulation. There's a lot of discussion uh, in the region about Chinese uh, um, influence operations, particularly with revelations that have come out of Australia and New Zealand, I would think this would be a prime area of cooperation with Indonesia. And it seems that appealing to Indonesians on the importance of democracy and protecting their their, their democracy uh, is something that would in resonate incredibly well. Well, we're not going to uh, put money into the election like uh, these other outside parties, but I think that's something we can uh, seriously bring to the table and should be a focus over the next year. Um, but just getting back to the, the, the defense relationship, um, with that, uh, again, as a, on the former Pentagon official hat, um, the, the bottom line is U.S.-Indonesia defense relations are excellent, uh, um, and, uh, but, and there are some China implications to them, uh, but the U.S.-Indonesia defense relationship is, is definitely not, uh, uh, not predominantly about China. Um, just for context, uh, U.S.-Indonesia defense relationship was uh, was halted, uh, was in various states of freeze from 1991 uh, to 2005 uh, due to human rights violations under the Suharto regime and just afterwards. Um, and it wasn't until 2005 where the defense relationship was normalized. So basically starting at zero in 2005, today, only 13 years later, uh, there's over 170 bilateral defense engagements with Indonesia. There's no, uh, uh, th there's no exercise on the scale of Cobra Gold or some of the very high-end things that the United States does with Japan. But in terms of absolute numbers, U.S. Pacific Command, Indo-Pacific Command, uh, uh, does more things with Indonesia than any other country in the Pacific. I think that's pretty, pretty remarkable. And Ambassador Hume oversaw the, be uh, the beginning of getting things back, back on track. Uh, another area that's gotten back on track in the U.S.-Indonesia defense relationship has been uh, defense sales. Uh, um, I think, uh, and this is quite new, the sale of uh, uh, eight Apache attack helicopters to uh, Indonesia a few years ago, and the fact that the U.S. Congress did not have an objection to this was really a demonstration that things are back to normal uh, in the U.S.-Indonesia defense trade relationship. 
there's a lot of high-level visits. Secretary Mattis was in Jakarta earlier this year. Uh, his counterpart has visited the Pentagon. I think they saw each other last week at Shangri-La. It's been a real focus in terms of actual time that the secretary uh, is spending with foreign counterparts, focusing on Indonesia. In terms of the types of things we do, uh, it's really wide-ranging. I was chatting with the, the, the guy who has my old job as the Indonesia desk over uh, over at DOD recently, and you know, it's really it, it covers the whole range of non-traditional threats, counterterrorism, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, IUU fishing issues, uh, piracy, and uh, you know China's discussed, I would say, uh, but it's absolutely not an organizing principle for U.S.-Indonesia defense relations. The way uh, China is an organizing principle for some of our other uh, defense relationships uh, in Asia, certainly. Uh, in the, uh, with Japan, Vietnam, uh, and elsewhere. Um, I would say, just note, though, it's, it's quite interesting bringing the, the China element that the one sore subject in the U.S.-Indonesia defense relationship is the remaining restrictions on U.S. engagement with Kopassus, the Indonesian Army Special Forces. I think it's not much of a coincidence that uh, one of the highlights of Indonesia-China defense cooperation is their cooperation with Kopassus. Uh, Kapasis is not just uh, any old unit. It's the unit that develops the Army's leaders. It develops, uh, ultimately, the TNI, the, the military's leaders. So I believe China actually sees a wedge here. And for the United States, the, we really need to figure out a way to get over this last hurdle uh, of engaging with Kapasis. It's a complicated issue. So uh, just zooming out a little bit, the way I see Indonesia's defense priorities overall, um, ultimately, I see Indonesian, the Indonesian defense established interested in two things. Number one, modernization, often modernization for the sake of modernization itself and befitting uh, having a military befitting of Indonesia's international stature. And two, being able to defend Indonesia's territorial integrity, the, the point that, that, that the minister returned to several times. Um, and the TNI vision for itself really center, centers around the being the essential guardian of Indonesian independence and sovereignty. And I think what this means for international partners is, is it means that we're going to have partnerships, uh, and you're certainly not going to have alignment uh, because of uh, uh, just where they're, they're coming from. Our top priority with Indonesia is not necessarily going to be there, uh, you know, somewhat uh, uh, this more narrow perspective. In practice, this means that Indonesia really has a, has a kaleidoscope of defense partners. Uh, I spoke with an Indonesian general in charge of defense policy recently, and he said, I, I, I posed this question as part of a project I'm doing on Indonesian defense diplomacy. Uh, I said, you know, who are your most important partners? And he says, first of all, we, we are friends with every country in the world, except for Israel and Taiwan. <laughs> um, uh, and on the defense side, uh, um, and, and those are, I would put asterisks against uh, with those too, because they have actual <laughs> relations. They've bought Israeli equipment, and they've uh, and they certainly want Taiwan around in the, in the neighborhood. Um, but they, so, but the result though is, you know, like President Yudhoyono used to talk about first a thousand friends and no enemies, and then it was a million friends and no enemies. But they want to be partners with everybody. And from a defense perspective and defense partnership perspective, they're looking to get different things from different partners. So the United States and Australia, they're looking for high-end training uh, from the United States uh, as well, looking for high-end defense equipment. Um, with their immediate neighbors, Malaysia, Philippines, uh, uh, Thailand, they're looking to solve real problems in the immediate neighborhood, uh, be it counter-piracy, counter-terrorism issues. Um, with some of middle powers somewhat further afield, uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, defense trade and 
defense industrial cooperation. Indonesia would like to build its own indigenous defense industry. If you go to the Ministry of Foreign Defense, Foreign uh, Minister Ministry of uh, Defense, and say who are your most important partners, South Korea comes up a lot. Um, is it because they have some sort of strategic alignment? No, it's because they are have some very robust defense co-production uh, uh, projects ongoing uh, with South Korea. They see it as a, a, a reasonably high capability, reasonable costs, and uh, a willingness to really transfer a lot of technology. Uh, um, to Indonesia. Um, and they have a re- relationship with China. And they they see this as part of an important overall relationship. Um, um, and they don't want to give the impression that somehow they're not aligning, that they might be aligning with the United States or something because they don't have a relationship with China. So it's important in and of itself to have a defense relationship uh, with China for them. Um, just from a, you know, just to close on a, uh, a U.S. perspective, I mean, I think... Uh, you know, Indonesia is it's certainly never going to be an ally, uh, but I think we need to always be uh, confident enough and humble enough to, to realize that Indonesia taking a center stage in the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific architecture is basically always going to be in the U.S. interest. Uh, uh, an active, outward-looking Indonesia, which I'm not sure we have right now, uh, makes ASEAN stronger. Uh, it creates another node uh, it's in, in the Indo-Pacific, besides the United States, China, Japan, India, and the more you have of that, uh, uh, um, the better. So I think I'll leave it with that and get to great, the conversation. Great. Thank you. That was terrific. Good to hear the security side covered so so well. Um, same drill as last time. I want to open up to questions. I've got a couple of my own to start so that you all have plenty of time to, to think it through. I'll come back to you. Um, I wanted to come back to the point that um, – uh, Ambassador Hume started with that is uh, contrasting a little bit Singapore and Indonesia uh, just to say that um, Singapore is so influential because essentially it works so hard, you know, because it's small, it's vulnerable, and it works double time. You know, I was watching Fox News last night and there's a big flag of Singapore on the screen. I'm like, how how did this happen? You know, it happened because they put themselves at the center of this uh, this North Korea problem, and frankly, that issue all aside, that is the, the issue of denuclearizing the peninsula, this whole thing is good for Singapore in, in that regard. Um, but Indonesia is the opposite. That is, if Singapore works so hard because it's so slow, it, because it's so uh, because it's so small, Indonesia works so little because it's so big. It has a certain amount of a it has a certain amount of a big country complex. Right. So, so my question is, you, you, you stated it as Indonesia punching below its weight on the international stage. So my question is, must it be that way? Is, is there any prospect that Indonesia will be any different? Or will it always play this sort of um, very quiet role on the regional stage even, on the, on the international stage in its relationship with important major powers? Uh, I, it's a good question. And I think it depends on the issue and the, and the context, what their opportunities are. I think it is worth recalling that the partnership, in many ways, between Lee Kuan Yew and uh, Suharto is what gave birth to ASEAN at a time when <clears throat> people in the region uh, saw that the American uh, effort experience in Vietnam would lead to failure, 
and uh, they were concerned about withdrawal of the United States from concerns in the region. They uh, brought together their friends for a post-Vietnam War effort the world. And uh, it is also worth noting that when uh, the United States wanted to form APEC, that all seems like it's in a different world, I have to say. Um, the country that stepped up to be uh, our partner in helping to organize it and host it was Indonesia. So uh, the, the comments that, that you've you heard today uh, suggest that there is, there is a space for uh, uh, U.S. cooperation with Indonesia. And it's often, you know, it, I think it's easier to understand if you imagine that that cooperation doesn't happen. APEC, without the cooperation of Indonesia, which is 43% of the ASEAN economy, population, and territory, more or less, they're all like between 40 and 45. Uh, you don't have the weight of organizational weight, the political weight, the economic weight that you that you'd need to balance the United States in organizing something. And uh, so I think there are opportunities. Uh, but the Indonesians, uh, uh, the Indonesians have to have to want to have a policy that's somewhat more defined than I. Gee, I want to be friends with everybody in the whole world, yeah. and uh, that doesn't mean picking friends and enemies. I think it means emphasizing uh, certain issues on which Indonesia should have a, uh, a larger role. Uh, trade is a fair question. They uh, were not part of the negotiations to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, when Jokowi visited Washington, he shocked a lot of the Indonesians who came to him because he said, gee, actually, on second thought, maybe we should, we <laughs> should get involved in this. Of course, now it's... But that's an empty space, and it's an empty space for the United States of America, to be honest. We know that during the last election campaign, both uh, candidates walked away from uh, the structures proposed by TPP. But it's a void now. What, what, what is the U.S. policy? What is it? And uh, anyway, so there are opp I think there are opportunities, but they have to be defined by political leadership. Well, you're right. It was, a, it was an entirely different universe in the, the era you're talking about, uh, especially with APEC. Let, let, let me ask it this way. If we formed APEC today, could we go to Jokowi and he would serve as an anchor in the same way that Suharto did? I think Suharto may have discussed it with Lee Kuan Yew and just gone ahead and done it. I think Jokowi would be somewhat more cautious and... Uh, Yeah, it, 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 I don't think it would be as easy. I think they would uh, they'd look around. On the other hand, as, as you pointed out, I mean, we have this very active, not really high level, but very active mm -hmm. defense relationship with Indonesia. It's space for political leadership. Wouldn't happen automatically. Who's who's leading, and what do they want? Yeah. 
Um, and, and Brian, I wanted to come back to your point about um, some of the military cooperation Indonesia has with other partners, um, especially on the um, the uh, acquisition side. So for a long time, we had prohibition on arms sales in Indonesia and talked about the normalization of that. Um, but I get the sense that that's still very much in defense planners' minds in Indonesia and still drives some of their decisions on acquisition. That is to be as diverse as possible so as not to fall into that trap again. Is that uh, Absolutely. Um, the lesson they learned from U.S. sanctions is they can't put all their eggs in, in one basket. Uh, and we go in to Jakarta and talk to them about interoperability and uh, having all these systems fit together. Uh, and they say, but we can't possibly just buy all your stuff or anyone else's because nobody uh, is related. I, but I will take this opportunity to just you know, put it out there. That the, this issue of uh, uh, I guess we're calling it Katsa, the uh, sanctions on countries that do business with Russia or not changing their relationship. Um, this would be hugely damaging for U.S.-Indonesia relationship uh, if all of a sudden we're putting sanctions on Indonesia because they're buying Russian defense equipment. Um, certainly there's a point to be made here on, on Russia, but there needs to be some sort of clear waiver system as, as this develops. Uh, I think this is just another case where they – Indonesia sees themselves potentially being caught in in, in geopolitical crosshairs uh, and ultimately damage uh, progress that's been made over the last several years uh, to try to convince them that the United States is a reliable defense partner. Mm -hmm. Same case goes for Vietnam, India, other others in the region. So mm -hmm. important issue. I don't think we've been paying enough attention to. I think you're right about that. Yeah, and there and there are there are waiver type ideas making their way through and we might end up with a fix to that but yeah yeah i agree uh let me open it up to questions yeah um right here thank you um my name is anshu i'm a reporter with inside u.s trade um and i just wanted to ask and we've touched on trade a little bit but um when the U.S. withdrew from TPP, it was basically, at least they said that, you know, that we're going to be pursuing bilateral trade agreements sort of in lieu of a multilateral one. Um, and to my knowledge, I don't believe that we are at least publicly negotiating with any country in a bilateral in the region so far. Um, but can, I just wanted to get the panel's thoughts on the sort of bilateral approach to trade with Asia, both with regards to Indonesia and with other countries in the region. I think they floated Vietnam and the Philippines and some other possible candidates for a uh, bilateral trade deal. And then quickly, if you could also just comment on the prospects of the conclusion of RCEP. Um, I think there's some renewed uh, emphasis on that, but I think India continues to remain an issue. Um, but, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I have a comment. <laughs> I have a comment on that. Um, um, you know, I, I think the problem with the bilateral trade approach continues to be that there are no takers in, in Asia for a variety of reasons. Um, one is I think that the package that is being offered is not so attractive. I mean, if I, if I want to start a trade agreement with you and my main demand is that I always run a, I always run a trade surplus, that's a hard place to start. And then on top of that, they're looking at, you know, any of these countries, Japan in particular is looking at the process unfold with NAFTA. And that's a scary prospect, especially if you're Japanese. But almost anybody is going to be worried about that. Uh, and then, and then, thirdly, there's certain compromises I think that all the countries made in a multilateral context within TPP that they're not necessarily comfortable making. 
um, in a bilateral context. Um, and, and I don't, I, I'm like you, I don't know of this moving forward in any significant way. Uh, there's also the often floated idea about the, some sort of model agreement in Africa. But I think Africa will have some of the, you know, African countries will have some of the same uh, reservations about this. Uh, and then there's the issue of resources. USTR is not the biggest organization in the world. I mean, it, it can't be doing all of these things, NAFTA, CHORUS, and CHORUS isn't done yet either. So NAFTA, CHORUS, um, the, the exclusions for the 232 sanctions and everything else, and still have time to pursue a positive trade agenda. So, um, you know, best case scenario, administration would exact its pound of flesh on these this uh, protectionist perspective and over the next year or so start to turn to some sort of positive agenda uh, which is going to have to include some sort of multilateral or plurilateral uh, element to it. It can't just be all bilateral for the reasons I suggest, but but also because um, everybody in the region is looking more to a multilateral perspective. On RCEP, I haven't heard anything new. I don't know if, if you have. I mean, what they're, they're into like 22 or 23 rounds now, right? And they're pretty far along. Um, Thank God for the Indians. Indians continue to be difficult negotiators. I think that's helped the process. But uh, I mean, you've got to get all these. You've got to get all these countries on board. And I, I don't, you know, especially with the growing concern over China and the role it's playing, uh, I don't see much, much movement coming. But I'm not following it closely enough, so maybe I've, I've missed something. Uh, on trade, uh, we tend. When we have a bilateral agreement, we tend to push our negotiating partner on very much on rule of law issues, whether that's intellectual property rights, dispute resolution, what have you. And uh, Indonesians have, have something that was like the Raj system in India. Uh, the minister was head of Bulag. What is Bulag? Bulag is a government entity which is responsible for importing all of the commodities, rice, soya, meat, and uh, putting them into the marketplace. And uh, the, the, the permitting of the, the Imports, which is not just Bulag, because it's also if you're just selling into the marketplace, you still have to get licenses to do things. You know, when I was ambassador, every six months I'd be asked by the ag attaché to please go talk to the ag minister. And the second time I was asked, I said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, you know, our beef production, our you know, frozen chicken wings, whatever it was." I said, "We both know that this isn't going to happen." I'll be glad to go and, and make every possible effort. But the minister depends on, uh, kick, I, I just use English, kickbacks from the people who actually got the, the licenses. I'll leave them uh, unmentioned, unnamed. And uh, we can't compete on that basis. And the, the, he didn't, Rizal did mention the, the financing issue. They, some parties need this money in order to be able to, to uh, compete in an election. And so it's, it's really important that they be, hope become the, that the, the minister who gives the licenses. It's not Bulag, so I'm not saying Romney was involved in this. Don't read anything. So 
Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think that the culture in which the two nations look at trade would make it a very strenuous and mind-numbing experience. Okay, thank you. Uh, very interesting uh, question about uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Indonesia because Indonesia is also on the priorities of three uh, zero one bill uh, investigation, and, and China is also. And uh, but we find Indonesia uh, takes very little actions uh, to not like China to make the balance of trade between the U.S. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, second question is about uh, to to Cameron. Um, uh, I wanted to know uh, if uh, President uh, uh, Trump will visit or stay to visit to you know this year, this year or last year. Why or why not? Thank you. <laughs> what, what, can you say the first question again? I didn't follow the. Can you restate this first question? Uh, Indonesia is also on the priority of the. Uh, three zero one and uh, uh, list. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, I see. Right. Um, okay. But uh, we find you know, this takes very, very few actions to balance U.S. Indonesia trade. I see. Right. We have a negative trade balance with Indonesia, uh, but it's really complicated. You know, uh, uh, Singapore is our tenth largest trade partner. Indonesia is our twenty sixth largest trade partner. Do all of the things that get booked as going to Singapore, do all of those soybeans actually get consumed in Singapore by Singaporeans? Or are they, in fact, consumed by Indonesians in Indonesia? So it's, you know, it's it's complicated. It's not uh, perhaps uh, President Trump finds an audience here for uh, whacking the Mexicans or the or the uh, the Canadians, he wouldn't find enough supporters who know where Indonesia is. <laughs> well, you know, I would say generally the the uh, that's the case with trade in the United States. Generally, I say there's a lot of commentary to the fact that Americans have turn sour on trade and, um, you know, they want to they're, – they're affected too much by China's entry into the market and all, all these other things. We've done polling here at Heritage shows Americans don't really think that much about trade. Uh, and, and, and when you go – the more specificity you get into, the less they think about it. Trade negotiations, a little bit less. Specific trade negotiations, specific agreements, even less. Uh, and so um, there's not this groundswell of, of uh, a movement on any of it. There, there are particular constituencies, labor constituencies, steel constituency, obviously now very well represented at USTR. But in terms of a population, it's not it's not very strong. I I, I would I would maintain. Um, did Did you have something to? I was just going to say I I don't know if President Trump is going to visit Jakarta or not. Certainly close to Singapore, but President Jokowi needs to get to Washington. Four Southeast Asian heads of state rushed in quite quickly and not the most important, the biggest country in Southeast Asia. I think that's a big mistake. I know there's a discussion about a potential visit uh, this fall before uh, the Indonesian election really, really gets going. Um, and, and we should absolutely make that trip. But, you know, that, that raises another question uh, about Jokowi that uh, Cameron touched on, I guess, uh, 
sort of incidentally in the sense that um, the prospects that Indonesia would become involved in some major initiative today, like APEC, mm -hmm. would also be contingent on Jokowi's interest. Mm -hmm. And while Suharto was interested largely in the Cold War context and his own domestic context, Jokowi doesn't seem very interested at all in any of these issues. Is that is that fair to say, as reflected by his lack of attention to this relationship? I think the top priorities for foreign policy are those that link directly to achieving his domestic economic aims, and that's why he's prioritized rightly the relation. He's he's prioritized the relationship with China and Japan uh, because those are significant foreign investors who can help him deliver on his domestic infrastructure push. Um, it's unclear whether the United States, at least from a government perspective, uh, can, can help him with that. Uh, certainly the internationalists in Jakarta are incredibly frustrated at the lack of uh, interest in uh, uh, broad-based international system issues or, or in ASEAN. Where they really see the, the focus as being on uh, um, relations with big, rich countries who can help bring infrastructure to Indonesia. We'll see if, uh, uh, as priorities shift in the second term, uh, if he is, uh, if he's reelected, whether that changes or not, uh, whether you have a, a a bigger name as the foreign minister, uh, we'll see. Okay. I'd just like to pick up on something here, which is a structural thing. The Indonesians, when they want investment in infrastructure, they want a partner to come in as a, a direct investor in the project. And after the project is complete, the toll road is done, the, the, the airport is built, whatever, at that point, to look for market refinancing that would allow the partner to exit with most of their capital. That's the model that they have. Uh, the U.S. investors, they're interested in investing in infrastructure projects in Indonesia. But what they want is to be able to invest in, in bond issuance, which meets all of the requirements of being sold in the marketplace. And that comes back to rule of law issues and uh, Foreign Corrupt Practice Act fears. And unless there is motion from one side or the other on these different models, it simply will not One last question here, down in front. Uh, hi, I'm Krishna Mari. Um, I attend uh, Center Grove High School in Indianapolis, um, but I'm re interning this summer at the Hudson Institute. Uh, I want to thank Heritage for organizing this. Um, my question was, um, um, how have uh, tensions um, with um, Indonesia's Chinese minority um, as we've seen in the past with the um, anti-Chinese riots that occurred in the 90s in Indonesia and the recent situation with the, uh, you know, former Javan governor Ahok, um, how have um, those tensions factored into Jakarta's relations with Beijing? Good question. <laughs> it's complex. <laughs> it's complex, yes. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, you know... <clears throat> Uh, probably uh, eight of the ten richest people in Indonesia are of Chinese ethnicity. So this is, and if you go to the highest end malls in Indonesia, 
if you if you I'm not very good at this, but if you can you know, tell oh, Chinese ethnic or Indonesian ethnic, you find that a very high percentage of the people there are Chinese. There's no question that Chinese have a higher income level, and that is the basis for a lot of the uh, uh, resentment, which from time to time has boiled over. It boiled over in the 1960s. Lots of people were killed. Of course, that was mixed in with the you know Chinese foreign policy and support for Suharto. But it's under the surface, and uh, we're Americans, so I'll give you an advantage. It's much, in a way, it is much more intense than the tension in race relations here, in a way. In other words, usually it doesn't play at all, but when it plays, tens of thousands of people die. And, and their record is that that's happened in a, on a recurrent basis normally more likely when there are economic pressures and people see why do those people have, why are they driving around town in a Jaguar for God's sake and I can't get food for my baby so it's it's there uh, but uh, 19 years out of 20 it's in, totally invisible and nobody pays any attention to it and people ignore it but someplace under the surface it's and Brian, does it play into Indonesia's relationship with Beijing? It's a, it's a tough question. I mean, in, in one hand, well, so and also just you know, the Chinese Indonesian community is, is quite diverse. So you get those eight out of ten uh, richest people, but it doesn't mean that every by a long shot doesn't mean every in Chinese Indonesia is somehow well off, but on balance, uh, um, they are, and uh, certainly Indonesian. Um, perceptions of China are colored by how these so-called native Indonesians look at Chinese Indonesians, and there's that. that I, I actually do think it's a it's a negative overall drag on Indonesia-China relations because of this this, this racial issue that's embedded there. Um, that's sort of hard to put your finger on how to quantify, um, but uh, I, I think it makes it more difficult to have a truly warm relationship between the governments uh, in, in Jakarta. They, and and there's a religious element because while there are some Chinese Indonesians who are Muslims, they're small in number, and predominantly there's the the the, the ethnic Chinese, and particularly in some of the urban areas, are significant participants, supporters, or whatever in the Christian churches. The the Buddhist associations are are more traditional and less and less sort of dynamic but uh particularly in Jakarta you know there are there are uh <laughs> I was really struck there there are protestant churches you know have seats for 10,000 people this is this is a real church going population That's a very good question. Thank you for that. Um, well, with that, I think we're going to have to wrap up. Before I do, I want to thank one person, the audience ambassador, Devinda Subasinga, for suggesting this uh, idea to me at first and bringing uh, Rizal Romley to us today. So thank you very much. We miss you in Washington. Maybe maybe you can come back as uh, uh, ambassador uh, uh, honorary or something. I don't know. But, um, but anyway, thank you very much for being here, and thank you to the panelists for a terrific discussion. Appreciate it.
great. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thanks a lot.